What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will Mike Bobo is back, and don't you know it? We're going to talk about it a lot today. Bobo is like the uh, like cousin Eddie from uh, Family Vacation. It's like who's taking care of Mike Bobo this week? Like whose family is he staying with? It's like well, Georgia had him for a while, then it was South Carolina, then it was Auburn. It's like all right, it's somebody else's turn. Can we give him to? Can we give him to Vandy or something? Georgia's like no, no. We actually like Uncle Mike. Okay, but Mike is a good guy. A lot of thoughts on that. Lots and lots of thoughts. We've got plan for today is Joe Moorhead, my guy. He's coming up mm-hmm. in a little bit here. We're going to close with something a little bit different in figuring it out. Forrest Walden is a former Auburn cheerleader who started Iron Tribe Fitness. Kind of talks about his business roots and and, and a lot of uh, fitness-related things of how he kind of got his start to be able to do what he's doing today. And he answered. he's going to answer some questions uh, from the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group on just kind of all things fitness. So something a little bit different, but I think people really like that. All right, let's start with Mike Bobo. In case you didn't spend any time on the internet this week, Todd Munkin took the Ravens offensive coordinator job and Mike Bobo is replacing him as Georgia's new slash old offensive coordinator. We had a total of, I think it was 10 minutes between the Munkin announcement from the Ravens, which it was straight from the source on that one, and then the Seth Emerson tweet that Bobo was being promoted to OC after spending a year at Georgia as an analyst. And for those 10 minutes, I thought, hey, there's a chance that this is the most coveted assistant opening in the country. You're getting to work with as good a talent as there is, which Georgia fans reminded you about a lot when they defended Mike Bobo. Uh, you're getting full autonomy on offense for the likely preseason number one team in America that's trying to win a third consecutive title. During the that very brief 10-minute stretch, I thought, should Georgia like cast a super wide net they probably could i mean maybe it's not going to be a splashy hire but gosh what a sell to be able to make you know munkin comes from the nfl and it does what he did at georgia and you know maybe you can cast that net to some nfl ocs as well i mean i thought munkin was this single best assistant hire of the playoff era so to show that you can have somebody like that go from the nfl to the college level and have that kind of success what a great sell for kirby smart but any thoughts of making pitches to guys like Dan Mullen, Joe Brady? I get it. Joe Brady loves the NFL. We shouldn't do this every year or whatever. He's still young enough. We're still going to do it. Cliff Kingsbury. Or even doing something really, really bold, which nobody was talking about this. Nobody's talking about this. Okay. But what about the idea of going over the top of Clemson and saying, oh, Garrett Riley, you've been there for like, what, a month? You even have a house yet? Come to Georgia. We'll win. And if you don't believe that we can win, and if you don't think that I have the pieces to win – Look at what we did to Clemson just over a year ago. Okay. That could have happened. Probably not. But still, we never even got any sort of little sniff that Kirby could be interested in the open market because Kirby Smart hired his college roommate and his close friend, Mike Bobo. Hold so on really quick. Let me, let me, let me pause you right there. So um, we got to juxtapose this because I remember in our last you know, podcast about a similar thing, we were talking about Alabama coordinators. And we kind of said that the Alabama offensive coordinator, What uh, compare those two and why do you think the Georgia one is such a better job opening? Georgia's a better job opening because you are, first of all, I think Munkin got, eh, I, I shouldn't say that he definitively got the credit that he deserved, but he got a lot of credit for Georgia's success and he should have. I think that you can look at the way that things played out and knowing that you have proven commodities returning 
for a team that just won a national championship. And as, as opposed to watching the guy who at Alabama just had consecutive offenses that were in the top six kind of get run out of town. Right. That wasn't the case at Georgia. So while expectations are sky high, and we're going to get to some of those expectations, why that impacts the way that we are perceiving this higher, I still think that expectations are a little bit more realistic to be able to hit at Georgia compared to Alabama. Does that? And it's also sense? that absolutely, and, and I think you hit on something key too, which is that Alabama did their offensive revolution in like. 2013 2014 where like when they really started thinking about right. opening things up it took georgia until literally like after Fromm left to really even so when the monk and hire was when they even yes. really started so i think that where at bamo you would be compared to all these other versions of that offense are kiffin uh even dable a little bit of loxley yeah all those guys exactly yeah like loxley as well guys that have gone on to do things i mean dable coach of the year in the nfl now like so now it's like well if you're not Munkin, who everybody loves you know, it, anything short of that is still fine. Whereas like at Alabama, it still feels like, as we've talked about, maybe they're chasing a little bit of the Kiffin. Maybe they're chasing a little bit of the Sark. With, I, I think I think that's a good thing because I know fans are going to be like, oh, you guys just said that Bama was, you know, a bad job and this is a good job. And I mean, they, they kind of had similar approaches to it, honestly. <laughs> no, I, and I'm not saying it's a Bama OC is a great job. It's an absolute no, yeah, great yeah, job yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. But I think the proven commodities helps. I think you can make the case that the best offensive player returning in college football is Brock Bowers. And I know there are people who say Blake Corm's better. Marvin Harrison Jr. is better. I would take Brock Bowers to start my team. I would take him over any player not named Caleb Williams in all of college football. I think you could look at that. I could play Brock Bowers at running back and probably get similar production to Corm. I've seen him play every football position. Put him at linebacker if you got a little bit of depth issues. He's got more ways to beat you. That he does. And obviously... You love what they return from an offensive line standpoint and being able to have Van Pran in there as well, not to say Bama's going to have a bad offensive line. I just think there are more proven commodities within that Georgia offense coming back, and it makes it a better immediate plug-and-play type job. That's my right. only point. Right. So you can probably tell from hearing the first part of that that um, I wasn't crazy about the move, and writing a column criticizing the move and the process that went into it got me into the crosshairs of Georgia Twitter because we're suddenly not allowed to criticize any personnel decision that's, that Kirby makes, even though he's made personnel mistakes in the past. And he'll suddenly, probably this make... has been the case since like 2018. I don't know. <laughs> this isn't a suddenly thing. Yeah, like he's – look, not every coach nails every single hire. That's even Nick Saban. The greatest coach of all time has not nailed every single hire. I think Alabama fans would agree with that, and Georgia fans um, would – also agree with that, that Kirby Smart has not nailed every single hire, but pushing back on this hire was considered like, whoa, how dare you? That is one of our own. And I know all the positives for Bobo. So I'm going to list them here. He operated the most prolific offenses in Georgia history and did so with lesser talent than what this group has. If you spend any time on the internet, you probably saw that point brought up. He's going to give you a chance to maintain stability. He's extremely well-liked. And I know that from guys who played for him, Kirby trusts him. And as we know, Kirby is big on loyalty. He's a Hufflepuff through and through. Bobo was always going to be the guy to replace Munkin whenever he decided to leave or at least that's what we found out. Bobo worked well under Munkin, apparently, and now with three quarterbacks who already have familiarity in the scheme, you don't have to bring in some outsider and hope that he understands the Georgia standard. Mike Bobo does. You get him, a.k.a. the guy who's been in Athens either as a player or as a coach for roughly 21 years of his life. And now there's the belief that with a non-Todd Grantham defense and instead of a you get now a Kirby smart defense. Georgia will continue on like business as usual and roll to another title. So why am I not sold? Well, why? Because I hate Georgia, obviously. 
Yeah, that's it. No, you actually, this whole time, we've been higher on Georgia than almost anybody. We secretly, it was all we were going to take off the mask in a big reveal, and actually, we hate Georgia. Exactly. Um, no, but it's a good thing I muted those mentions on uh, on Tuesday. Happy Valentine's Day to your boy. That was, uh, yikes, not great. Um, think about this. I described to you why that Georgia offensive coordinator job is so good. And like I said, I, I think it's the number one assistant job that that there could be in college football right now. How many people get highly coveted jobs for things that they did a decade ago? Highest well, thing on the resume is something that happened nine years ago. LSU tried that, didn't they? How'd that go? Not great. How'd that go? I'm not saying Mike Bob was going to be Bo Pelini. All right, relax, relax. Okay. Anyone who is pro Bobo is going to sell you on this hire based on what he did for a different Georgia program in a different SEC, in a different world of offenses. Everyone keeps telling me about how Mike Bobo raised the bar at Georgia. He did. He didn't have full autonomy, but he raised the bar at Georgia and he deserves credit for that. I won't take that away from him, despite the fact that if you actually look a little bit closer at the 2014 Georgia offense, they got a nice little boost from 58 non-offensive points scored that year. Again, keep that in mind. Not taking away from Bobo, just something worth keeping in mind. You know who raised the bar even higher at Georgia? Todd freaking Munkin, a.k.a. the guy who helped Georgia average 46.6 points per game against teams who finished in the AP Top 25. If you think it's a given that Mike Bobo steps in and does exactly what Todd Munkin did, I think you're underestimating Munkin and forgetting that the single biggest knock on Bobo when he was at Georgia was how predictable his offense felt. Is it a touch overrated to always be unpredictable? Yeah, we talk about that. Sometimes it's like, hey, you don't have to be unpredictable. We watched it in the Super Bowl. Nick Sirianni did not care whatsoever that they knew what was happening on third and one. They're going to run the football with their quarterback. Boom, you can't stop it. Great. You know what Bobo couldn't do at Auburn in his one season there before he was fired? Fool anyone. That's why they didn't finish in the top half of the FBS in scoring or yards per play, even with year three of Bo Nix, who, as we found out this past year, is pretty good in the right scheme. And it wasn't entirely 100% just based on the fact that he went from the SEC to the Pac-12. Speaking of scheme, remember before the start of the 2020 season, Bobo tells 24-7 Sports that the no-huddle offense, even though it's very effective, it, quote, allows you to sometimes get cheap yards, but football has fundamentally gone downhill because of going so fast. You know what went downhill? The South Carolina offense he ran in hopes of saving the job of his buddy, Will Muschamp. 98th in scoring, 90th in yards per play. Ah, but he, COVID, you know. South Carolina was the only team that dealt with absences all year. Sure. Never mind the fact that Bobo got to handpick his quarterback, Colin Hill, from Colorado State. Remember that? He took over a team that was top third in the country in percentage of returning offensive production, and they stayed the same, and it wasn't very good. The Colorado State thing, different talent level. Totally get it. He's a head coach, whatever. He's got a lot going on. Two of Bobo's five offenses ranked in the top 60, but the last two offenses didn't crack the top 70. And remember, it's not like Colorado State was some wasteland. Before Jim McElwain turned the keys over to Mike Bobo. He had consecutive offenses that ranked in the top fourth nationally. Jim McElwain did really good things at Colorado State and said, here you go, Mike Bobo. Boom, we're going to do the same exact thing. You're going to take over. You're going to make this thing go. And that was difficult. So to recap, 
a guy who hasn't led a top 60 offense since 2017 just got the keys to potentially the sweetest ride in all of college football. Bob was going to put up points. So don't spin this as like, oh, Connor said that Georgia would have the worst offense in the SEC. I get it. Disrespect. It's all the rage these days. Shout out to Travis Kelsey for assuming that everybody and their mother predicted the Chiefs to go 0 and 17 this year. Okay. Nobody's saying seven and five. Nobody's saying six and six. We said that as a bulletin board thing. That was a joke. We're not saying that. They're going to score points. I get the Matt Hayes side of this argument that, quote, not even Bobo can screw this up. I get it. <laughs> I do. What I think many are forgetting is the standard is different now. And it's not about what your floor is. It's about what your ceiling is. Take it from Bama fans. When you have an OC that feels like, oh man, this guy just leaves points on the board and he's the one with total autonomy. He's getting the blame. It ain't the talent. It ain't the head coach. It's the guy calling plays. And when you are the favorite to win a national championship, that is magnified. Speaking of the total autonomy thing, Look back on the coordinators who had full autonomy for teams who won the national championship in the playoff era. So just we're let's make sure that we're clear on what exactly that is. Pete Golding as the defensive coordinator at Bama didn't have full autonomy because Nick Saban, he's a defensive minded coach who was above him. Having full autonomy is Todd Munkin, because as we know, Kirby has a defensive background and that's where his expertise is most valuable. That's where he can kind of oversee. I'm not saying that he doesn't help out in the offense, but it's a different story. Coaches talk about this all the time. You're going to hear Joe Moorhead bring up that word in the interview that we're going to get to in a little bit here. So again, these are the coordinators who had full autonomy on their side of the ball for the national championship teams in the playoff era 2014 ohio state luke fickle was the dc 2015 bama lane kiffin was the oc 2016 clemson brent venables was the dc 2017 bama brian dable was the oc 2018 clemson brent venables still the dc 2019 lsu steve ensminger was the oc but as we know he shared play calling duties with joe brady who won the Broyles award it was his scheme you get it 2020 bama steve sarkeesian was the oc 2021 georgia Todd Munkin was the OC. And once again, in 2022, Todd Munkin was the OC. Well, what's your like just observation from hearing that group of coaches? Uh, it's a really good group of coaches. Really good group. Like really, really like guys that like uh, should probably stayed coordinators a bit too long or were only coordinators because they wanted to be. Yeah, that's that's a. That's a big boy group right there. It really yeah. is. Like Ensminger is probably the closest thing to, to a non-game changer of that group as a coordinator. But like, again, when it was very obvious, Joe Brady and, and Ed O'Tron talked about this repeatedly, like it was all Joe Brady's scheme. And he's the one that's getting also, he's getting play calling duties as well. So it's a little bit different talking about that setup. And if I would say Aranda, I think also had pretty much full autonomy because I think him and Coach O speak different yeah, languages. Fair. I don't think I think if Coach OK would do his being trying to say something, he'd be like, all right, man. Uh, but that's another guy we've talked about football savant genius, like on the same level, like X's nose is Kirby, not a great recruiter, but a guy who gets football on that level. And you, yeah, that's that's the. Exactly. We're just looking at it from from a background standpoint. Right. I'm not saying that Nick Saban never sits on an, on an offensive meeting. That's not what I'm saying, but right, yeah. just the, the most control. All right. Like, right. Hey, you know, it's not like Nick Saban's out here, like calling offensive plays or doing something like that. That's that's a little bit of a different story. If you're assuming anyone can do this and by this, I mean, win a national title. If you're assuming that anyone can do this with total autonomy, I don't know if you're appreciating that. Like even with all the talent, you've still got to be a darn good schemer, which I think all of those guys have proven to be. 
that is why I push back at someone saying, well, it worked out with Georgia when they did the in-house thing with, with Schumann and Muschamp. You know what helps? When you have Kirby Smart overseeing that defense as one of the best defensive minds of the 21st century. Right. That little bit of a of a factor. I'm just gonna say. Like I there were people that were tweeting me like, oh, you doubted the Glenn Schumann hire too. I'm like, what? What? I no? we love that guy. I wanted that guy to come to LSU. I that guy's super smart. <laughs> I when they promoted him, I went, uh-oh. I mean, the must-champ part of it's kind of something else, but at the same time, like you said, they have great talent. It's kind of hard to screw up that defense. And and Schumann's a genius. And obviously <laughs> Landing is also like probably also a genius. So they had lots of guys in the building at the time. Exactly. And they got Kirby Smart. Right. And who's okay. that guy for the offense? Is there like another like guy in the room that could be like a shadow coach if things go poorly because it seems when you say total autonomy it's like it's not him and you know it's not like the Loxley Gaddis type of situation it's it's just him yes and I agree with that 100% so I I want to get into this discussion about like look I I don't want to I want to say this in the right way I hope that Mike Bobo is going to take a lot of these concepts from Todd Munkin and use them effectively because the way that Munkin used the tight ends was special and the variety of ways that Georgia could beat you was what made this year's team so unbelievably good. I hope that Mike Bobo was willing to actually utilize up-tempo offense the way that Munkin did. I'm still scarred from that game uh, that South Carolina played at Florida 2020 when he just refused to run up tempo down two touchdowns late in the fourth quarter. And they ran an 18 play 74 yard drive that lasted seven minutes and 23 seconds. And it resulted in zero points. Florida got the ball back with 48 seconds. I rewatched the end of that game to prepare for this South Carolina fans don't need to rewatch. They remember it. They really do. The lack of urgency from Bobo is just, so maddening like they were snapping it on third and fourth down with three seconds left on the play clock in the final three minutes it would it's seriously if you want to see the big like the most like lack of urgency mindset ever for a team down two touchdowns in in a football game like that like that is it right there um talent doesn't fix that talent doesn't fix that and by the way after that game must champ he saw nothing wrong with it and didn't think that it was a deliberate pace because South Carolina was just taking what the defense was giving them. Man. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think there's two sides of it, right? I mean, we can see that, you know, Georgia and Alabama have kind of, we, we talked about, we were a little bit underwhelmed by their three hires. Um, but I think that there is a kind of through line, which is the return to old school football, the move away from the spread. Sure. I mean, you, yep. you picked a coordinator that actively despises spread offenses. So I'm here to tell you right now, you guys, Georgia, you're not running spread. You know what I'm saying? When you guys, you know, when the offense goes on the field, that might be the time to take the bathroom breaks because the defense is still going to be show stopping, but it's going to be four yards in a cloud of dust um, because he just doesn't value these high scoring type of games. And obviously I know about 2013. I was there. I get that. But like, I will say this, like this is an interesting guy for me specifically because as an LSU fan, before I worked for SDS, I I wasn't dialed into what Georgia was doing in 2007 from an OC standpoint. What I know Mike Bobo from is hearing all my Georgia fans complain about him and then watching him coach at South Carolina and Auburn. And my mental image of what I was getting was exactly what I expected to be. Like when I talked to Georgia fans about Bobo and like, you know, punching the punching the table like the Nebraska fans and saying, dang it, Momo. Like, that's what I saw, but a worse version. And so, like, I'll say this too. Like, 
I understand what the mentality is of returning. You have this great tight end. You have these great backs. You have these great lines. You just want to push the other team, take care of the ball, whatever. But on the other side of that is two things. Thing number one is that this offense, like if you had this Georgia defense with an average offense, they do not win the second national championship in a row. They just don't. They just Correct. don't. They don't win their first playoff game. They go 0-1 in the playoff. Ohio State beats them by 20, and yep. that's the end of it because they had to lock in on offense and outscore an Ohio State team with a first-round draft pick quarterback, three potential first-round draft pick uh, receivers. I know they didn't all play, but that's what type of talent they were facing. And their offense straight up outplayed Ohio State when they needed to. Their offense even couldn't do that as regularly in 2021, and you know, it's some of the stuff that happened with the Bama game, but that's the difference, and that's why there is an argument to this team being a little bit better in some situations in 2021 because the offense was able to get out of these holes. That's a new thing for Georgia, and I know that Murray had did a little bit of that too. We looked at his numbers, and he's underrated historically. Uh, you know, He's, what, five yards away from potentially being one of the greatest SEC quarterbacks of all time or, or national quarterbacks of all time, and now we just know him as an SEC legend um but i i think that he aaron murray is a very underrated quarterback i think that what bobo did is respect respectable but at the same time okay being good back then as we saw i just talked about with bo polini very funny bopo bobo whatever but uh very very funny or, or sorry uh we, we talked about that it's like i remember watching bo polini's defenses going wow wow and then he checked back in and was different and i'm not going to compare the two because i know that to your point you know the talent is such that you can push forward in a lot of games, but exactly what you said, we I'm glad I'm going on vacation because we are thinking too similarly right now. It's not, it's the same conversation that we had with Alabama. It's not the floor because the floor at those places will always be so high. It's going to be 10 wins, 11 wins. You know what I'm saying? But the ceiling where Ohio state is just wrecking you and you have to crawl out of the hole and you're fifth year, six year quarterback is leading you and beating the crap out of that defense you know, that is where you win national titles. So I think that I think that Georgia fans have been able to just bet on Kirby over and over and over again, and it's paid off for them. And maybe this offense will look fine. But if, like, schematically, what he did at uh, South Carolina and Auburn, like, procedurally just kind of didn't work. Like, you, like guys were confused. Got, like, they couldn't get plays off. Like, it was brutal to watch both of those teams. And so, like I said, I know that, I know that, you know, it's going to look better than that. I know the offense is going to be fine, but in modern college football, it's like fine is not going to do you anything. You know, Georgia was good enough to be the only defensive team to win a recent national title. Okay. And then they flipped it and then they became an offensive team when it mattered, like we said, but you're not going to get that every year. You're really not. That was one of the best defenses in college football history. And and every year you're not going to see this. And I was thinking about this. It's funny because I was looking at the South Carolina thing. I was like, who couldn't score in 2020? Everybody could score in 2020. That's why Georgia struggled so much because their defense wasn't able to help them. Guess who couldn't score in 2020? South well, Carolina. <laughs> COVID. COVID. So we're good. We we're not counting that. That doesn't that doesn't matter. Uh 2021 was just Brian Harson overseeing everything. Bo didn't have total autonomy. Let Bobo cook. You know, I'm just saying throwing it I out mean, there. And it's tough when you see what has happened with Bo Nix because I've gone all the way 180 on Bo Nix. I'm like, is this guy? Could this guy? Could this guy like be some type of a role player in the NFL? Part like of it is the is the Pac-12 thing. Part of it definitely is, but it's but, not all that. 
it I know, can't one hundred percent be that. Yeah, he looks like the player. You know, Gus and Harson and Bobo made him look like a, a like a bottom ten percent of what he could have been. But you see him play Oregon, it's like this is the recruit I watched, and some of that blame has to fall on Bobo. You know, you you when you watch the Alabama Auburn game where you have a defense that was shutting down Alabama, like this Alabama team. You know what I'm saying? That beat Georgia. This Alabama team that was unstoppable. That Georgia couldn't stop and Auburn. Um and and um. Derek Mason slowed them down that day and they couldn't score 13 Connor. Like they needed us something. And I remember looking at my TV being like, this is what these Georgia fans talked about. Dang it, Bobo. And now I feel like I'm being gaslit because we all agreed on this a year ago. And now we're back here and I have to pretend like you guys didn't say all this mean stuff about Bobo. And that's my only takeaway is I learned about him through you guys dumping on him. I watched him be bad and I thought we were all alive, but the, the the memo did not go out to me. I did not get the email. I was not CC'd. So if you guys would like to come talk to me and, and, and tell me why Bobo is now good, I just know him as a bad coach. Please inform me. <laughs> I get that Kirby has, has earned trust. I, I do. And, and for those who are like, you know what? He, he proved, he proved us wrong with, with the Stetson deal. And, and he obviously saw something in Todd Munkin, even though Freddie kitchens wouldn't let him call plays with the Browns. Like in Kirby, we trust. I, I get that right. mindset. And I'm not sitting here predicting that Georgia is about to go into the toilet offensively. That's not what I'm saying. Right. Neither they, of us are. They could have a top 20 offense, and it wouldn't surprise me. But given the standard that has been set, Kirby going with familiarity and essentially ignoring the fact that it didn't work out in the last three places that Bobo was at, I do wonder if this ends up being the thing that prevents Georgia from three-peating. And for what it's worth, like I'm not going to sit here and root against Georgia just so that I can say 11 months from now, see, I told you so, shouldn't have hired Mike Bobo. Because in my perfect world, I'd get to go watch a bunch of offenses who did the things that Georgia did. Because Georgia was fun to watch this past year, especially against quality competition. That is fun for me and you, people who like watching good football, who sit at home on our butts during these Saturdays. And we're like, oh my God, Munkin's in his bag right now did you see that yep. wheel route to brock bowers yep. oh my god like <laughs> you saw it a little too much there saw didn't you? too much in person one time with no beer sales it was rough. <laughs> that is fun for us to talk about that is fun for for me to write about but i have no axe to grind with mike bobo whatsoever i i really don't all i've heard is that people really really like him okay i get it I am just trying to call it like I see it. If Nick Saban had gone out and hired Mike Bobo, everybody and their mother would have said, wow, Nick Saban is losing his freaking mind. Guess that's what happens when you're north of 70. We would have said that. We would have. If Bobo had been hired by Georgia back in 2019 instead of Munkin, which seemed like a realistic possibility at one point. I remember being at our live show in Atlanta at the college at the College Football Hall of Fame. And like somebody said to us in the audience, like, oh, like Georgia apparently close to bringing Mike Bobo back as the OC. And we're like, really? You seriously? That like, was actually one of the defining Mike Bobo memories I have because I was part of that conversation. I was like, oh, okay. If that happens... No, I don't think Georgia wins consecutive national titles. I don't. Georgia got over the hump because Munkin was the final piece to the puzzle. If James Coley or Jim Chaney is running Stetson Bennett's offense, do they win these past two years? I don't think so. Scheme matters. Creativity matters. I question if Bogo is going to have enough of that or if Kirby is going to regret hiring somebody that he's so close to. I do. I really do. And I'm going to make Georgia fans a deal here. Here's what I'm going to do. Georgia wins a national title. And uh, with Bobo as the OC, or Georgia averages 40 points per game. Because remember, that's the new standard. That's the new standard. And that's kind of like, if you look at it, 
recent memory. I think that's like kind of borderline. That's like top 10 offense, basically. Like that's pretty much what you have to operate. So if that happens, one of those two things, Georgia wins a national championship or they average 40 points per game. I will get on these airwaves after a Georgia national title, after a three-peat, after besting 1936 Minnesota. And I will give you two things, Georgia fans. I'll give you a full-on apology letter. I've had to write them before. Pretty good, Adam. Sick brag. And here's here's the better part. To close every single show in the offseason, I will say something positive about Mike Bobo. You know, like how Jay, Jay Billis does the Young Jeezy tweets? Yeah. That, that'll, that'll be me with Bobo to sign off every single time. I'll say something positive about Mike Bobo. It can be a stat. It can be, I think he looks good bald. It can be, wow, that polo was slimming. I will find some way to comp- to compliment your new offensive play caller. Is that fair? Yes. No, a hundred percent. And I think you just framed it completely correctly. Like as a as a guy without a dog in the fight, if you put in the terrible pun, but like it's you know as as an LSU fan, I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, like you know what I'm saying. Like I know I love LSU's two coordinators. We had Alabama and Georgia had to go get three combined, and they all felt like a little bit of the downgrade from even what they had before. And Munkin versus you know Bill O'Brien obviously was kind of shown the door. Munkin obviously moved on, so it's a little bit different. And obviously, I'm sure if it was up to Kirby, he would just keep Munkin forever. So it's not like that was his choice the way it sure. was Saban's. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like you know it, it exactly what you said. If you if this hire happened to your rival, if you heard this week. That Florida hired Mike Bobo. What if AM like, had made that decision instead of Bobby Petrino? One. Jimbo Fisher's first play caller is Mike, Mike Bobo. Bobo. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the thing is like, take yourself out of this because I know this. I was dealing with this as an LSU fan in 2020 when I was like, well, you know, everything's going to be fine. I trust our coach. And I understand that Kirby is a much better coach than Coach O. I understand that. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't for two days, but that was it. You know what I'm saying? The rest of the time, that was it. And so, you know, um, point being, I was like, oh, well, you know, we're bringing Bo Pelini. That's, I was always kind of out on that. I don't think I ever got gaslit into that one. Uh, but the other dude, Linehan, same day, I was like, I guess I'll trust Coach O. And it's like, sometimes you just, sometimes things are what we think they are. So that, that's my thing. Maybe there is, maybe this is as easy as we think. And this will just be a step back on offense, which if you're Georgia, you have much talent, you have great defense, but we are trying, here you go. As story writers, we are actively rooting for it not to just be Bama beating the crap out of everyone. And I think this was a step farther away from that because this was the moment where if Georgia nails this higher, if they bring in like Garrett Riley, they never look back. Because you know what Bama just brought in, and it's not that scary. Like, it's not a Dan Mullen. It's not – um who's, who's our boy? Uh, Asparagus. I'm blanking on his name, of course. Pruitt. Jimmy Pruitt. Of, of course, like, you know, it wasn't Pruitt Mullen. You know, it wasn't like, oh, no. It's like, okay, you're kind of on even ground. You're kind of trying to figure out where you're at. If you guys brought in one of those guys, like a guy that you would love and could pick right – if you kept Munkin it would have been completely just separating and not looking back. But now we don't know what we're going to get. And it could be a situation where Bama has the same talent as you. And now you're kind of in looking at each other in the eye versus last year, the back-to-back championships being the jumping point for Georgia, just running college football. I'm dreading the the tweets that Georgia fans are going to have ready to go when they score like 40 points in a game or score 45. And they're like, they said we wouldn't score a point this year with Bobo as our OC. They said we were going to average three points. That was what they said. That's what we said. I'm not looking at the Georgia the stats saying that Georgia scored 41 points a game last year because you said 40. I was like, dang, 40 is a big number. No, they just did that and a little bit better. Like, it's not a ridiculous expectation. That's the new standard. And yep. look, only one non-offensive score all year, and it was the the picked up block kick against LSU. 
in the SEC championship. Sorry, didn't mean to go there for you, Will. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just saying. I will. I will say really quick. Every of the podcast was like, "Hey, well, you know, Bobo had the first two drives against LSU." I was like, "The three and out." I was like, I was like, I was like, the one second of that game, I thought we might win it when they went three and out, and we went down and scored. That is what he did. Awesome. I get <laughs> so, it. Yeah, I mean. You can sell yourself on stuff. You can sell yourself. You, you want to spin this narrative in the offseason. This is the time to do it. We don't spin during the season. We spin yep. in the offseason. That's, that's what we do. That's the facts. Yep. All right. Before we kick it to Joe Moorhead and Forrest Walden, a quick word from our friends at Underdog. As you guys know, sports betting not legal in all these states, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, et cetera, most of the SEC states. I want to talk to you about Underdog Fantasy. You might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past, but Underdog is a new platform that's extremely popular right now. And they have some awesome contests where you can compete for real money. It is a great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement with Underdog. If you go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog, you can automatically double your deposit when you join, sign up, throw in 50 bucks. They'll throw in 50 more dollars. It is a great way to get some money to play in these contests every week you can pick higher or lower for different players it's pretty similar to sports betting player props and you can put real money on the line yes legal and live in all of these states alabama georgia florida texas etc underdog is awesome it is super super fun to do maybe you're going to be watching some hoops in the next few weeks you're like i want to get a little bit of action on this go to underdog they'll get you taken care of very very fun thing to do while you're in the comfort of your own home just in your living room watching sports go to saturdaydownsouth.com slash underdog and take advantage of our promo where underdog will double your first deposit up to a hundred dollars take a hundred dollars absolutely free it's saturdaydownsouth.com slash underdog all right let's kick it to joe and then forrest i'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest it is the one and only joe moorhead joe it is great to be able to see you uh congratulations are in order because we found out earlier this week that you got an extension at akron after there was reportedly some interest from the nfl and at the power five level for coordinator jobs Let's get the hard question out of the way here. Uh, how aggressive was the pursuit from Marcus Freeman? <laughs> Coming out of the gates firing, huh? <laughs> no, I mean, you, you and I have talked in the past, and, and, and I've kind of made it a policy really never to, you know, publicly speak about, you know, uh, interest from, from other schools or other teams and not a respect for, for those people, their administrators, and, and certainly our, our, you know, our school and our players. So, uh Yeah. <laughs> I had to come out and ask because obviously know, that's, that's fair. I get it. You're, you're doing you're doing your due diligence. I understand. That's the thing that gets thrown out there, and I think a lot of people they'll look just at the the raw two and ten number that you guys had in your first year there, and they'll look at the extension and say like, all right, what what am I missing here? But there's obviously more to it in situations like this. You and you inherited obviously a pretty difficult situation, and you really only had one game in the latter half of the year that you guys like weren't competitive in, and obviously the Northern Illinois win that you guys you know, we're, we're dominant. And so I, I think when you see that, when an athletic director who likes you sees that you're in demand, these are just the types of things that come in this business. If you could kind of explain that, that's the, that significance of being like, all right, you know, we're building something here and I feel good about where we're at being able to move into year two, knowing that we felt like we got some momentum down the stretch here. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's really, you know, a couple of different, um, items that come in, come into play regarding the extension. Number one, I'm incredibly appreciative, you know, of, uh, you know, our president, uh, uh, Dr. Miller and, uh, you know, Charles Guthrie, our athletic director and, and our assistant coaches and players, because certainly they believe in, you know, what we're, what we're building here. And, you know, as you mentioned, we, uh, you know, inherited arguably the, the, the worst team in, in uh, you know, division one football 
over the past three years, had three total wins. And, you know, this past year, as you mentioned, we only won two games. Um, but our five conference losses were by one, three, six, six, and seven, uh, in addition to a nine-point loss to Liberty, which was a two-point game uh, with four minutes left. And, um, you know, the year uh, prior to our arrival, I think the average score in that games was something like 42 to 17. So uh, we went from being almost completely non-competitive to having an opportunity you know, to win a bunch of games. And, you know, it takes three things to build a program, right? Talent, culture, and coaching in that order. And I think we've made significant strides in all those areas. Uh, we're continuing to flip the roster with a bunch of players that are, you know, capable of uh, performing at a high level. And, uh, you know, excited to, you know, continue, uh, you know, down this road. I've got a bone to pick with you, I'm going to be honest, though. Sure. Um, so when we talked, like, we talked, what was it, December after you got the job, um, I thought I had talked you into being a two-point conversion guy. And um, yeah, I looked at the numbers this past year, 0 for 3 on two-point conversions. I, I assume that you spent the last two months just in the lab trying to figure out your two-point conversion game. We, um, we're actually in the process right now. This is one of my favorite parts of the year. Uh, you know, offense, defense, and special teams, we, you know, watch our cut-ups from the 2022 season, first and second down, third down, red zone, goal line. Uh, four minute, two minute, and the aforementioned uh, two point attempts, which there, you know, weren't a bunch of. And then uh, now we're into off season studies. We pick three one double A teams, uh, three one A teams, and then three pro teams to study. And then we get into our spring ball prep. But yeah, certainly, you know, we watched the three attempts. None of them were successful, and you know, maybe come up and draw some draw some winners up for us. I mean, that corn dog play in the Super Bowl, the, the little reverse motion, that looked pretty good. That was yeah. for a two-point conversion. Twice, not once, twice. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, like, you want to throw it out there, that's that's a good way to diversify, get kids. Hey, we don't we don't kick extra points. We go for two here. There's there's a mantra in there, and that would fit Maction. I mean, it would just it would work perfectly. Um, so going back to last season, you knew that going into a game like Tennessee, you're one. You're going to be overmatched, but we at the time knew the Tennessee offense was going to be really, really good, but we didn't know just how good it was going to be. And you see the points that they put up against a team like Alabama. Um, what were your thoughts on Hendon Hooker, just seeing him that day? Because I had moments watching him these last two years that he was the starter at Tennessee where I got some Trace McSorley vibes from him. Yeah, uh, I think you can't you know, say enough about the job that Coach Heupel and his staff have done there, um, you know, in really a short amount of time, uh, you know, Coach Gola, she went on to USF, and then uh, Tim Banks, who was, you know, we were together at, at Penn State. They've uh, they've really, really, you know, done a nice job. And and I, I you see some of these job projections, and you know, I think Hooker's as good as any quarterback in the country. You know, operating that system, they were actually one of the teams we we studied here uh, the past few days. But uh, has ability to make all the throws, makes great decisions in the run game. Uh, as a guy that can create plays by design or improvisation, I, I think I don't know that. Uh, I, I think he, I think he's one of the top quarterbacks in the country, and I'm re really interested to see how how he uh, you know translates those abilities to the professional level. When you see him not getting the buzz of like a Will Levis, and I know you know Will a little bit, you know, given the Penn State roots and all that stuff, but like like you see, you know, the way that people are talking about Will Levis, the way that people are talking about Anthony Richardson, you know, quarterbacks really well, and obviously you know, you understand kind of what it takes to be able to, to succeed at the NFL level. What's kind of your take when you see that and you see the way that they're being dissected from, from draft people right now? Yeah, that, that was, I was actually talking to my youngest son about it in the car yesterday um, that Justin Fields was committed to us on November 9th of 2016 for eight months until Georgia flipped them. And then 
you know, I was able to, or we were able to, uh, you know, replace him with Will Levis in that class. So those two guys will both be, I guess, top 10 picks. And, you know, Will's a great kid and excited to see, you know, where he ends up in the draft. But I think Hennon Hooker's as good as any quarterback in the country. And, uh, you know, haven't had a chance to study all of those guys who are projected to go early uh, enough to make a, a, a um, you know, incredibly detailed uh, evaluation. But for what I've seen from Hooker in person and studying him on film, I don't, I don't think he takes a backseat to anybody. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but because of kind of the, the blending of styles that we see with with college in the NFL combined with maybe the rule changes in the way in which quarterbacks are being developed at such an early age, it's it's not that it's easier to become an NFL starter, but it feels like there are just more paths for guys like Hooker, who might not necessarily have the same sort of physical gifts that others do that we look at, you know, 30, 40 years ago, like your guy, Dan Marino. I, is, is it fair to say that there are just more paths to becoming that guy in the NFL and we just have a, a, a broader um, acceptance of what a quarterback can look like in today's day and age? Yeah, I, I think um, the um, the amount of um, – you see, um, you know, a certain style of offense instead of trickling down, trickling up, you know, in, in the two teams in the Super Bowl, you know, uh, the Chiefs and the, and the Eagles, one back, primarily 11 personnel, quarterback in the shotgun, uh, using, uh, you know, some version of the RPO. And, uh, you know, the quarterbacks, you know, as you mentioned before, by design or improvisation, having some design runs in there and then the ability to push the ball down the field. Uh, you know, with dropbacks or play action. So so I think that the, the style of the game is changing a bit. You know, there's still some teams that are, you know, multiple backs, multiple tight ends, and they're going to line up in the eye and, you know, try to, you know, get it downhill. But I, I think the the style of offense that we're seeing in the NFL, you know, is is one that, that guys at the college level have been, you know, executing at a high level for quite some years now. Another guy that I wanted to ask you about for a little bit is uh, is Robbie Ashford because I, I know you got to see him up close at Oregon. He kind of got to be Auburn starter in a bit of a lost season for them with the, the the way that things played out with Brian Harson. But you know, spending some time with him is also different for him because he was playing baseball in the spring, so you didn't necessarily right. get to see those those reps. But what did you what did you kind of see from him early on? And do you think that it could work with with working with you know guys like Hugh Freeze and Philip Montgomery? Do you think that there's enough there to think that he can become a legitimate SEC starter that Auburn can kind of build around? I haven't I didn't get to see any Auburn uh, games this past season, but you know was following online and saw some of the stats. And uh, you know Robbie had some really big games running and throwing it, but uh, anyone who's seen him play knows he's he's blessed with tremendous. You know, uh, physical tools, you know, strong arm, accurate, and then, you know, c- c- can run the ball like a tailback when he pulls it. And, uh, you know, obviously Coach Freeze has a, a tremendous history of um, utilizing dual threat quarterbacks in the system and, you know, guys that can, uh, you know, make a defense defend every blade of grass. So I think Robbie will be a really good fit with uh, coaches. I'm assuming he's going he's gonna to run down there at Auburn. And, uh, you know, I, I think you know, Robbie's got a really, really bright future. I know you're a baseball guy, but at some point where you're like, Robbie, man, like, come on, football. Like, if you're going to go all in with this, there are very few guys, you know, there are very few guys who can do the Jameis Winston thing and playing, playing football, in, you know, at the quarterback position, at the power five level, and then also doing baseball in the spring. It's different when you're trying to do it as a quarterback. Did you ever have any of those conversations with them? Like, hey, you know, why don't, why don't you give this football thing a, a full-time try? You know, I, I go back to, you know, um, you know, Brad Comas at Mississippi State. 
who I think was picked in the ninth round by the Rockies this year, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, anytime a kid um, exhibits the talent, the ability to potentially play professionally in two different sports, which, you know, you listen to the people talk about Robbie, you know, that's a distinct possibility. So uh, as, as, you know, you, you never, you never want to take away an opportunity for a young man, you know, to play after college. And, and if that's something that Robbie was able to do, I didn't, you know, obviously you want to be selfish and you want to get him in the quarterback room and do all those things during spring ball. But if a guy's going to you know, be a draft pick in baseball, like Brad was, and I remember coach Lamonis and I sat down and kind of mapped out what we were going to do for Brad during the spring. These were the days he would come to practice. And then the weekend they needed him for, you know, SEC play, you know, uh, you know, certainly, like I said, you never want to take away an opportunity for – be selfish and take away an opportunity from a kid that can you know, potentially play, you know, a sport at the professional level. It's so hard. You see, like, guys like Connor Nolan, you know, kind of pick their path at Arkansas and he tried to do it his first year. And then he's like, ah, you know what, baseball is his future. And, you know, looks like a guy who who chose right for them. Uh, when, when you're scouting a quarterback, and this was something that was talked about with the late Mike Leach and how much he looked at accuracy is, look, you, you just can't. That's the stuff that I'll, I'll work with accuracy all day. Arm strength is overrated, blah, blah, blah. What's that trait that you look at that you say, like, all right. I know th this kid has this, this, and this, but this is the thing, this is the trait that I just can't be without. I never limit it to one. Uh, uh, my and our evaluation process for quarterbacks, the first thing we're going to look at is measurables, things that you can quantify and things that, that are objective, height, weight, you know, speed, you know, all, all the things that, you know, are going to show up when you you can bring them in, you can measure them and do, do all those things. You know, the next thing I'm going to look at is – um you know, the things that are non-physical but objective, right? Uh, record, uh, completion percentage, and then touchdown interception ratio, and then what he does running the football. Uh, because very rarely are you going to find a guy who's expected to perform at the Power Five or Group of Five level who's on a football team, you know, that doesn't win. Usually those guys can put the team on their back and carry them uh, to a good season. But, uh, you know, we look for, you know – 65% uh, plus is what we want for completion percentage, you know. So to me, 70, 70 plus is a five, 65 is a four, 60 is a three, 55 is a two, and one. And then for touchdown interception, you know, five to one's a five, four to one's a four, and then, then so on down the line. And, you know, you're looking at, or is this guy making plays with his feet by design or improvisation? And then some of the things that are their film evaluation tools, right, that are a little bit subjective, arm strength, um, you know, does he throw all the routes? You know, how do his teammates react to him after he makes a good play? You know, do they run to him or do they run away from him? You know, and then certainly talking to the people that are in his sphere, you know, uh, you know, what do, what do people think of him? Right? Is this is this guy, you know, someone that's going to be able to line up behind center and, you know, lead a group of people, uh, you know, to success? What's overrated then? What is overrated? Sometimes I think what, what's overrated is uh, the evaluation of a quarterback prospect at one of our camps or in a seven-on-seven? Seven. Mm. To me, I think I think that's something that uh, if you're looking at the like, it's something that can add to an evaluation, but I don't think it's the primary focus of it. To, to me, at the end of the day, I want to know what's happening on film when there's consequences to his actions. Uh, when the when the when the bullets are flying, when there's a pressure situation, to me the the biggest thing is the film. And then all, all those other things, 
You know, there's a lot of guys that can stand back there and pat the ball when they're throwing routes on air or seven on seven and there's no pressure or there's no consequence and look great. But when they get in the game, they, you know, they, you know, they fold. So, so to me, I, I think those things are great as, as a standalone, but they're not, not a primary uh, to be source of evaluation. Who's the quarterback looking back on your career that you, you wish you could have coached? Maybe like there was somebody that you missed out on in recruiting, maybe like, you know, a Justin Fields situation where he's committed and then he's not committed. Or like maybe you just watched them from afar, you saw their skill set, and you thought, man, that would have been really fun to be able to work with. Yeah, uh, Justin's a guy. Yeah. As a Bears fan. No, um, yeah. Uh, hey, Luke Gessie's our OC. That's my, that's my, uh, Luke, Luke was, uh, I coached Luke here at Akron and actually he was well at Mississippi State as well. When you so okay, he, so I, he gets a coaching by proxy, I suppose. That that call, that's got to be like, it was long speculated. You know, it was going to be difficult. Georgia coming in, given given you know the 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 proximity and all those different things. But like, talk about you, the break the breakup call. Yeah, the breakup call. Like that. Looking back, that's that's got to be the the toughest one. Do you remember when when that I happened? Was, I could tell you exactly what happened. We we it was during the summer. Uh, we were at a uh, travel baseball game for my youngest son. Game ended, and we went to a restaurant in Penn State uh, to grab lunch. And the call came, and, uh, you know, w- when when the conversation begins with, you know, Coach, do you have a second to talk? Uh, it's usually not heading down the right path. So I walked out, you know, and, and Justin kind of explained his reasoning and what he was going to do, and, you know, certainly didn't like it or understand it. But, you know, that's, you know, that's, I think, our job. That, how a coach reacts to you when you decommit is usually a sign of how coach you if you came to the school so uh came back to the table <laughs> my youngest one's a freshman in high school now but uh you know gave him the news and when we got home locked himself in his room and was crying i had to, I had to go and console him because he was crying for about an hour and a half that we lost justin so yes i i, I distinctly remember how that whole thing shook down that dinner sucked that dinner yeah, was it, not gonna taste good <laughs> it, was, it was not happy do you when you get in that situation like do you do you try and convince him, hey, don't do this? Or like, I mean, there's there's only so much you can do, I would imagine, right? No, I mean, I, I had developed such a great relationship with uh, Pablo, his dad, and you know, mom, stepmom, and Justin. And, you know, he was staying at home to play for Georgia, and you know, his sister was going there to play softball. And, you know, like I said, it, it's kind of like I look at it when you have to inform your team that you're taking another job. You know, you don't want them to like it, but to a certain extent, you know, they understand it. And, you know, certainly you didn't want to lose, you know, a player of Justin's caliber, but, you know, the reasoning behind his, you know, decision-making, you know, you really, if you're, if you're being honest with yourself, you know, it's hard to fault him. I thought you were going to say Justin Fields or Christian Hackenberg is the answer to that. Christian Hackenberg, I tried when, when, when I got the job, Christian came in and sat down and we kind of went through some film and stuff like that. But it, to a certain extent, I feel like he had already had his mind made up that he was leaving. He did. And he regrets yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, that that I that I know for sure. Um, okay, so how hard is it to be a head coach and handle play calling duties? Because based on everyone that I've ever talked to about it, it just seems like an absurd amount of work. And it's something where you get the job because of how good you are as a play caller. But then when you have it and you have to juggle all these duties, it seems like it's something that's really difficult, especially from the offensive perspective and how much attention is being put into you know scheming these days and how difficult that can be. Yeah, it's tough, and certainly um, I think you have to do a great job, you know, uh, delegating a responsibility and hiring people that you can trust and, and give them a relative level of autonomy, particularly on the defensive side of the ball and special teams. So Coach Tibisar has, has coordinated at, at 
you know, several different power five schools and, you know, been in the NFL, been in the CFL, and I'm not going to be in that room a ton. So, you know, you, you, you kind of got to let him do his thing. And when there's time during the week, you certainly meet and talk about the game plan and adjustments and watch the film and things like that. And it's the same with special teams. And then, you know, offensively, I've got a bunch of guys right now who have worked in the system with me and our offensive coordinator, Billy Fessler, played for me at Penn State and was with us at Mississippi State and spent some really nice time with Coach Day at Ohio State. So you have to trust that the people in the room understand the system. And when you step out, you know, the meeting doesn't come to a screeching halt. Like we were in there just watching Ohio State and said I had to come talk to my guy, Connor, and, you know, the meeting carries on. So not to be incredibly long with it, it is difficult, but you have to do a great job, number one, hiring competent people who you trust, uh, two, be good at delegating responsibility, and um, three, being very uh, organized and, uh, you know, having a, a, a great time, a, a great plan for, you know, being efficient with your time. What's harder, scripting a perfect 15 plays or intermittent fasting wherein you you can't eat until 6 o'clock? And I'm kind of off that bus, so I, I, I'm going to go with the intermittent fasting part because I'm kind of falling off the off the wagon there a little bit, and I'm kind of creeping back up the wrong way on the scale. But uh, I'd say scripting script the plays. When I saw you go through that at SEC Media Days and I watched – I, I don't I didn't keep track of how many times you asked what time it was and not because you wanted things to be over, but because you wanted to eat and because yeah. you're like, it needs to be six o'clock. I was like, man, I can't. And you were in it, too, at that time. And you're like, all right, all right I've already lost you know 70 pounds. and I'm going through it. If it's still that hard at that point, man, that's uh that's brutal. I can't imagine going through that. No, I wasn't dipping my toes in. I, I mean, I I, I just I dumped jump completely in the deep end and. I mean, I'm not, not not to advocate, but I mean, it works. I mean, I, I went from almost three bills down to down to two thirty five, and it it wasn't it wasn't easy. So, uh, I think I might have to start here again. But uh, yeah, we're we're creeping back up towards the wrong end of the scale. So we we, we might have to start that process again here soon. <laughs> got to be a better way to do it. There's got to be a yeah, better there's, way. Yeah, there's, there's got, yeah, it's an easier way, but who knows. Uh, your son Donovan, uh, he's out here getting offers uh, after his after his freshman year uh, of, of high school. Um, we know he's already six three. We know the DNA is as good as it gets. Would you want to coach him in college? Um, no, I, I would not. Uh, and I, I really, I don't particularly, you know, I, I don't, I don't coach him now. So he, he's at his high school. He's got his head coach. He's got his offensive coordinator. He works with those guys. Um, you know, I, I have him work with a a, a local, you know. You know, quarterback trainer Brad Mandler, who 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 had Drew Aller at uh, at Penn State, and he works with him twice a week. And you know, he and I are very similar. Uh, and I don't want to say hard headed, but there's a certain point where, you know, you're not a coach anymore; you're a dad. So you know, we'll watch film together. We'll have a catch. You know, we'll talk about, you know, you know certain generalities of the position. But you know, certain it, it, there's a, there's a certain time where you want someone else to you know, do, do the heavy lifting and, you know, get just a chance to sit back and be a dad. Okay. Speaking of that last one for you, um, I'm seeking as much dad advice as I can get. Our first child is a girl. My wife is due in late May. Give me the the condensed version of the 15 play script to get through those first, uh, those first like three, four months. Three or four months. All right. Find out the um, best mechanism to get them to go to bed at night. You know, whether it's the rocking in the chair putting them in the swing, you know, putting them in a the car and driving them around. I'm not sure what the method is of letting them cry themselves to sleep, but that didn't work for us. And then you've really got to hatch out a good plan between uh, you and your wife about, you know, all right, first time she gets up at night, 
you know, it's, it's just every other one or it's two for two or it's three for three, or you got it tonight. I got it tomorrow. And then, uh, you know, aside from that, you know, just make sure you're, you're proficient at changing the diapers, you know, everything else going to take care of itself. That's true. We got, we have the snoo, like the, the thing that you rent that, that, that is like, you can rent it by the month and it, it swings. It essentially does like drive. It's the drive around in the car, but it, you can just like put it in your house. Um, we put the order in last night. So I'm, I'm hoping that takes care of it because that sleep stuff, man, it's no uh, joke. It's, That's what everybody it's no, It is no joke. Not at all. Uh, Joe, appreciate the time as always. Uh, we are a pro zips podcast and I'll even root for you when you, uh, when you're facing my alma mater, Indiana this year. I appreciate it. So uh, love to see you up here in Akron if, if you ever get some time. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is a special edition of Figuring Out with Iron Tribe Fitness founder and Auburn grad Forrest Walden. Uh, Forrest, let's, let's start with the the elephant in the room here. I've got a lot of, I want to get to with you. I do. And you've been asked this before, no doubt, but in, you're a former Auburn cheerleader with the name Forrest. Uh, we literally intro figuring out every single time with a with Forrest Gump clip. <laughs> I, there's got to be some sort of connection there, right? Well, so what's crazy is when the movie came out, I was dating a girl named Jenny. No way. And I was teaching high school cheerleading camps, all girls. So can you imagine the abuse I took, you know, where they would just, you know, run for us, run and just all. Yeah. So I've heard every joke under the sun, but yeah. No connection though to the, cause I mean, I realize that the age doesn't really line up for you, but it's like, yeah, no connection to the movie whatsoever, but man, when it came out, wow, it was, it was, uh, it was right there for a few, few years. That's incredible. All right. So uh, before we get to some some questions that we got from our listeners, your fitness and really business journey sort of coincided. Most people who are faced with a realization of gaining 30 pounds of muscle to be able to do something just decide, all right, that's not really my plan then. I'm not supposed to do that specific thing. You took the other path. That's kind of what it was going to be able to take for you to make it as a cheerleader and be able to do your job effectively. Tell us sort of how that kind of launched your career into the fitness space. Yeah. So I was an athlete all through high school. I mean, I don't know where you went to high school, but where I went, you got beat up. If you were a male cheerleader, that was never on the radar. I wanted to play football at Auburn university it was my goal in life. So I was training for it and just realized, man, it just wasn't going to happen. So did the typical fraternity college experience, quit working out, did everything fraternity guys do. And I was miserable. I hated it. I was bad at it. And so when I decided to make the cheerleading team, I actually made it. And I looked around I and mean, I was the smallest guy by at least 30 pounds. So Everything I'd learned training for football is like, this has got to change. I set a goal, came back on campus August of that year for two days, and I had put on 30 pounds. And, you know, everybody kind of did a double take. And it just changed everything about me, my confidence, um, the power of goal setting, all the delayed gratification of working out and training, eating supplements while everybody else is going out drinking. And I felt great. And I thought, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. And it's all I've ever done. So I, I love that you can tell right in the name of Iron Tribe Fitness that it's it's group fitness, it's tribe, it's doing this in a group. What are the the origins of you 
understanding kind of the way that the market was shifting, the fact that group fitness was becoming one of those really popular things, where was kind of like your aha moment to say, okay, this is a great business model? It's a great question. So I was in one-on-one training for almost 15 years and it started at Cass Fitness Center in Auburn when I was doing it for free because I didn't know you could make money with it. Um, But I did that for years and years. I saw the industry shifting. In fact, I converted my garage into a gym and invited a bunch of my friends over. And that was about 2007. And I just had an epiphany. I was like, man, this is the future. It's fun. People are getting fit. There's a competition element that I've never really seen in the one-on-one environment. So about 07, I, my, my ears perked up and by 10, I was ready to sell everything I had built with my previous company and start Iron Tribe in 2010. Okay. So, cause you had been doing stuff in the fitness space, but before that, right. It wasn't just like, yeah. Oh, Hey, had a bunch of guys and a bunch of buddies in my gym. Why not just launch this, this fitness empire and create it to That's what right. it is you had experienced. Yeah, I was a franchisee and a master franchisee of another concept called Fitness Together that was all one-on-one personal training. They did not want to adapt. They did not want to go group. So I sold them back that territory. They wanted it back and they signed off on my no compete so I could go do something else. And that's what I did. And so from the very beginning, the goal was to launch a group uh, location in Homewood here in Birmingham where I live and then ultimately scale it multiple times and franchise it. That's what we've done. It's it's pretty crazy because I, I think there's there there's a, a perception of group fitness that is largely associated with CrossFit and people see CrossFit and they assume that everything group fitness related is just that and it's yeah. really not and there's so much more to it within the space itself. What's the best piece of advice that you would give someone who swears by individual training and is like, ah, you know what, that group thing, I kind of like just being able to be locked into my own thing and kind of focus on me and not have everybody else around me. Yeah, I think there's a place for all of it. I think there's a customer still who wants that one-on-one training modality. In my experience, most often that turns into a therapy session more than a training session. Um, What I've learned in the group expression of it is that people will push themselves harder typically than they will in a one-on-one environment. Now, you could also say if you're dealing with an injury, if you're older, if you're older, you know, have risk, then you might be better in a one-on-one because you can't even control yourself when the clock goes three, two, one. You're like, I'm going to hold back today. Like, oh, nope, I'm killing it. You know, some people say I can't do it because of my personality, but I find for most people, they need the camaraderie, they need the accountability, and they need the relationships to get them over the hump of the fact that they're not someone who wakes up every day and really wants to go work out. Like it needs to be fun. It needs to be something they look forward to. And group just really delivers on that. Yeah, it's like if you're the person that is shouldn't that shouldn't be pushing yourself, the last thing you need probably is a big group of people kind of around you doing something like that or like looking over your shoulder, being like, "Oh, this person did this. I got to see what I can do." Like that's that's how you get hurt. That's probably a bad uh, then, a bad philosophy. And then put a score to it, and put a yeah. leaderboard to it, and put an app to it where that you know they can their scores go. But we've thought through all that. We have divisions, and we have all kind of things that so people who want to be competitive can, and those who don't don't have to be. You can both live here and now we do semi-private personal training which is five or less very custom programs because it's not a one fit all fits all here there's different really legitimate reasons people would choose different paths but i'm still a fan of group yeah yeah We, we we talk football on this podcast so uh does group training include being in a weight room with your entire team house music is blasting the smelling salts are going the strength coach is screaming and everyone's freaking out for one rep max is it does that qualify as group as group fitness 
Yeah, hundred percent. It is. It's more team training and there's a lot more probably strategy around the periodization and the structure of the programming, because those coaches can control how many times those customers, those clients, those, uh, I guess th those athletes come right where our customers may come two times a week or four times a week. It's hard to, in the group environment, it's hard to structure the programming specifically, but yes, under the kind of the macro phrasing, that's definitely team training, group training. What's the the proper approach, um, either in group or individual, when you see somebody in one of your in one of your facilities where the form is so bad that they're going to hurt themselves? Like you, as the bystander, when you see something like that, are and I imagine when it's with a group, it's a little bit different than when you see somebody doing it individually. But like, what's your standard protocol when you see something like that happen? Because I'm sure people listening to this are like, oh my gosh, I go to the gym and I see that all the time and I never know what to do. I'm always kind of paralyzed by like, uh, what's awkward. It feels like everything is awkward in that situation. Yeah. So I don't know. I won't say that that never happens here, but we do have a very methodical onboarding process to make sure people understand the movements before they're performing them. And then there's some movements where like an overhead squat, if you don't have mobility in the shoulder, my client, my coach is going to say, come down into a front squat. It's not worth the extra risk and stress of going overhead if you can't get into the position. So ultimately, it's a lot like an ER nurse when someone comes in and she's got a triage. OK, your ankle's broken, but you're bleeding out of your neck. We're going to handle the neck. So in your scenario, if I'm seeing someone deadlifting and they look like a dog trying to take a poop, okay, first thing we're going to do is strip the weight and say, hey, do you even know how to do a proper deadlift? Because the number on the board is not worth you never being able to work out the rest of your life. Like, let's get that ego lifting stuff out of here. See, if you say that, you're good. Nobody's good. Nobody, you're like, all right, you know what? You got the credibility to be able to say that. I come in and say that to somebody and I would be the person that would want to turn around and swing at that person and be like, get away, get away from me. I know. Exactly yeah, and I think that's an environment thing too. Would I go into a Globo gym and say that to yep. someone? No, but if you're in my gym, you're paying to be coached. True. And if you don't want to be coached, you need to go to one of those Globo gyms and blow your desk out. We're not about that. Using the squat rack for benching, hard pass, or is that acceptable? Um, only if it's your only place you can bench. Yes. But hard pass. Otherwise using it for curls, hard pass every day. Okay, good, good. Because that's, that's the one where I come back to where I'm just like, gosh, I see that so often. And it's, it's never quick. It's never a quick set. It's always the longest possible set where you're doing 20 minutes of a bench set on the squat rack. And I just absolutely can't stand that. Um, totally. So, all right, let's get to some questions that we got from our Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. We got some good ones here. Um, let's start with this one from uh, Benny Hanna, who this guy, that is his name, and he knew exactly who you were. Uh, okay. I didn't even provide your name, so that's how well-known you are uh, in this space. So he says, uh, hello, Mr. Walden. Influencers, he puts in quotes, are getting out of hand with filming complete strangers and bullying them because of things as minor inadvertent eye contact. Uh, what's the answer here? Is prohibiting filming at gyms enough? Or are we moving to a future where there are like single sex gyms? Uh, what are the benefits? And then also what are the benefits of a personal trainer in an era in which we have the culmination of like all the human knowledge at our fingertips? Well, let me take the the first part first is I have limited experience now with the general membership 
uh, expression of fitness. I, I can't tell you the last time I've been in a, in a regular gym. So in my gym, you're coming, you have a coach, you have a program, you have a structured everything you're doing. I've never, with this brand, we're going on 13 years. I've never dealt with cyberbullying inside of one of my locations. In fact, what I find is the opposite. We actually try to take a, a, a seasoned member and couple them as more of a mentor with someone new coming through the door to help them through the ropes. Like just, hey, how do you exist in this environment? What the, When you look at the board, here's how, we just make, try to smooth that process. So because we don't want it to be an intimidating place to be, it's hard enough to walk through our doors anyway, admitting that, hey, I may not be as good shape as I want to be. That's like a hard admission for a lot of people. So I got to plead ignorance on this. That sounds terrible. I yeah. wouldn't want any part of that, but I'm just not in that general membership space to even probably offer advice other than management would have to crack down and just know that who's ever doing that, it'd be better to revoke their membership than to try to placate that and manage that, in my opinion. And sometimes you have to fire clients, you just do, to preserve the, the better community. Um, the second part, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's the same thing with the internet and with chat GPT and all these things where we have unlimited information at our fingertips and yet we're fatter than we've ever been. So a lot of times information is not what leads to change. It's accountability, it's structure, it's good coaching. And that only happens in a human to human relationship. And so can you use something like a tonal? Can you use something like a mirror or a Peloton? Yes, I think you can. Some people can, but I think if you just even look at the uh, stock prices and the trails, the sales trends post COVID on some of those same pieces of machinery that are doing so well when people had to work out at home, they're not doing as well now because people crave that human interaction. And there's something about fitness, you know, back kind of about your group fitness question to begin. There's something about the camaraderie. It creates a comfortable third place that is so missing in our communities today. We have work and we have home. The gym can legit be that third place where you make some of the best relationships that you didn't know you needed. Yeah. Accountability and structure. It's, it's so hard to manufacture that. And when you it see is. these situations, sometimes like I, I, I remember I had personal training I did starting in like 2018, I want to say, and did so like a couple of years of it off and on. And then, you know, would do with some of the group settings and stuff like that as well. And the accountability that's there is just like, it's second to none. And it's hard to just like be able to manufacture that all the time. And unless you're a really difficult per or unless you're a really disciplined person, it's very easy to kind of fall off that track. So that's a very, very interesting perspective that you, that you have on that for sure. Um, Emery Picker says, um, okay, he's got a couple rapid fire ones for you. One, well, so we'll just do this in order. Which supplements are kind of BS? Like you see that supplement and you don't have to say the specific brand name, but a type of supplement that you're like, mm, you don't really need that. I think it's easier to say which ones aren't. Okay. Seriously, you need like a good quality whey protein. You need a good quality uh, creatine. That's one of the most tested, talking about 50 years of research on creatine now. I have no issue uh, recommending that. And then you maybe can take a general vitamin mineral supplementation. You're probably peeing most of that away. But above and beyond those three things, I think you're probably wasting your money and you'd spend be a lot better spending more time focusing on what you're getting at the grocery store than what you're getting at the supplement store. Okay. Along that similar school of thought, how much caffeine is too much caffeine in pre-workout or are you 
anti-pre-workout, like, nah, you just like, if you can get by without it, like you're, you're so much better for it. I'd like to be, but, um, I'd be a hypocrite because I still love my coffee and I still love my pre-workout. There's a great book called Atomic Habits. And one of the fundamental things of the whole book is oftentimes it's not the actual habit that leads to change. It's the precursor to the habit. So for example, if you're trying to get yourself to work out, just focus on I make pre-workout because here's the deal. If you mix that pre-workout, it's super easy, but you're not going to waste that supplement or the great feeling you have where your face feels like it's about to, you're going to claw your face off and you got all this energy. So literally something as easy as that, changing that behavior will lead to the workout. So Personally, I don't like a pre-workout that has more than 200 milligrams of caffeine in it. I just don't like the way I feel, but up to 200, I find most people tolerate it pretty well. And then, um, okay. Yeah. You kind of already answered the, what to look for in quality protein, talking about whey protein, uh, which supplements do not enough people know. Oh yeah. That's maybe, maybe a good one. How about not necessarily supplements? Cause we kind of already hit on that, but what's, what's an ingredient when you're maybe at, at the grocery store and you're looking at nutrition facts or something like that. What's something that that people maybe overlook a little bit too much and they, they should be having more of in their diet? So the thing people overlook the most is the amount of sugar in everything and all the different names for sugar. Mm. And pretty much anything processed is sugar, crackers, chips, like things you're thinking, oh, no, that's sweets, that's cookies, that's cakes. But almost everything processed ultimately comes down to sugar, breaks down really quickly in your bloodstream, makes it extremely hard to lose fat. So that's what overlook. What people miss is not getting enough quality protein on their plate. Every meal should have a good quality protein source. And so if you're not getting protein, then by default, you're overeating carbs. How do you find the non-meat, I guess we just call them vegetarian protein options have progressed like are you still one of those people that is like ah you know what the market is it's really difficult if you want to go that route or now you know we're seeing more people kind of take that route you know justin fields is a vegetarian starting quarterback in the nfl i think he's vegan too like are there more options now for that or is it still kind of like ah you're probably going to have to be a meat eater to get the gains that you that you truly want to be able to get I've evolved on this. I used to, I'll still try to talk you out of it unless you really understand what you're doing. Um, our president here at my brand is a vegetarian. She knows how, to, yeah, there's so many more off, more options now than even a decade ago. And people are so much more educated on it. And even you find like eating out at restaurants and, you know, there's actually options where before that wouldn't even have been heard of. So you can totally do it. You just have to be a little bit more diligent um, to make sure you're getting your protein in because it's not as easy. Okay. Well, I'll end with this one for you. Uh, this comes from Jesse Folly. Jesse says, what is the least practical exercise that everyone loves hmm. and the most practical hmm. exercise that everyone hates? Okay, I'm going to go with the bench press because everybody loves it. And I think for what you actually get out of it, especially for most guys when it comes to shoulder health, it's, I mean, it, it's a great exercise, but it's overblown and you can get so much more out of a body weight dip, out of an inclined dumbbell press, out of some other things that are a little easier on your shoulders. Most people, um, when they get hurt, it's going to be on the bench press is what I found typically because they're lifting too much. So I'm going to go there and then overlook that I think is you just can't get away from. It's going to be a tie between the squat and the deadlift. 
like just moving weight effectively with your natural human movement patterns, both of those squat deadlift, you're going to do those to the day you die. And so keeping that movement pattern healthy and strong is the key to staying out of the nursing home. Yeah. The bench, the bench is for ego. Once you accept that, that's right. That's right. If you, if you could just tell yourself, this isn't really for gains, it's more so like a competition thing. I want to be able to see how much I could do this. That's really what it's more so about. If you're going into the gym thinking that a bench is going to get you jacked or into like this, this specific shape, it's totally different. Like squats all day. I've always kind of thought very, very similarly in that, in that school of thought. Um, okay. Before you go, I want to promote everything that, that you've got going. Um, where can people find you? Why do, why do you think that your, your model and what you've been able to create is something that, uh, anybody f- that's just sitting at home trying to figure out a, a better way to be able to get into fitness uh, should be able to to kind of get involved with. Yeah, so we uh, have 33 locations across the southeast. We're in eight states. Um, you can go to our website and see where all the locations are. Ultimately, why have we grown and why are we so good at what we do? It comes down to our coaches. We put all our effort in recruiting, attracting, onboarding, and training the best coaches in the industry. And a good coach is going to push you, but a good coach also knows to tell you when you're overtraining and when you need to take a day off. And so ultimately, that's what we deliver. We work with busy men and women, typically 35 to 55. We have more over 40 than under 40. Most people don't believe or think that looking from the outside in, but we do. And we just want to help you get in the best shape of your life. We think it's the most important investment you'll make. So um, you can go to irontrapfitness.com. You can follow me personally, Forrest Walden, on both Facebook and Instagram. Love it. Absolutely love it. Oh, one last, last thing. Hugh Freeze, year one. You got a record prediction? I'm going to go, I'm going to be a little bit optimistic and say uh, eight and four or eight and five, whatever, however many number of games we play, but somewhere in that range, that'd that'd be a good improvement. Yeah, that would be definitely for sure. Forrest, this has been great. Really appreciate the time, man. Uh, Best of luck continuing everything that you're doing and continuing to to build up your fitness empire. Thank you, Connor. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at the SDS pod at Sat Down South. Subscribe to our basketball newsletter, Blue Chip Grit. You can do that at bluechipgrit.com. Join the Facebook group and hear your name read on air with figuring out or bold and brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.